On the return trip home, gazing through 240,000 miles of space towards the stars and the planet from which I had come, I suddenly experienced the universe as intelligent, loving, harmonious. The Interplanetary Podcast. The exploration of space for the benefit of all mankind. Your hosts here in London, Matthew Russell and Jamie Franklin. Space. Matt, who who was that? It was Edgar Mitchell. Whose birthday is on the 17th of September. We'll be raising a glass of wine. Edgar Mitchell's a weird one, isn't he? Because he's one of the ones that believes in aliens. Like, he was fully, fully, like, there are definitely aliens. Yeah, I think, you know, I forgive him that. uh, You know all those WikiLeak um, emails that sort of came out? Yeah. One of them was Mm -hmm. from... uh, uh, was from Mitchell himself, Edgar Mitchell, and it was trying to get hold of Hillary Clinton to discuss uh, how zero-point energy from aliens could save the planet from global warming. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. please find that document yeah, and send well, it to yeah. me. That's brilliant. Yeah, no, it's amazing. So he's not the only one born on the 17th. He's not the only Apollo astronaut born on the 17th of September in 1930. Who else are we looking at? Thomas Stafford as well, who was an who was oh, a big star. Who was Apollo ten? So he actually piloted the lunar lander, but had to have the the nerve not to land it and become the first man on the moon. Oof, yeah. So he he was the one that got it into a great big spin and ironed out the last little bits before Neil Armstrong went and did it for oh, real. God, I know. Ouch. Yeah. So yeah. So amazing. But, I, you know what was really weird about this? So, so I thought oh, that's funny that they're both born on the seventeenth of September, nineteen thirty, born on the same day. So I thought, well, mm-hmm. I wonder who else was born in nineteen thirty? Because I remember when we were talking about John Young, he was. Yeah. But guess who else? Go on. Buzz Aldrin. Right. Irwin. Yeah. Conrad. What? Neil Armstrong. John Young. What? <laughs> Collins. White. All of those Apollo astronauts went. A guy called Pogue, who was part of Skylab. Another guy called Adams, who in some ways is considered the first US space fatality. And he died in an X-15 when he was about 80 kilometers high. So that was considered um, uh, he was in space. So he has actually got his space wings for that particular thing. But yeah, he died doing it. But So all of that lot were born in 1930. God, that's mad. I'll share a birthday with Big Daddy. What, the wrestler? Yeah, Big Daddy the wrestler. Big Daddy. Sean Connery. Oh, yeah. Clint Eastwood. Right. Steve McQueen. What? Gene Hackman, Ray Charles, and unfortunately, Rolf Harris. Oh, Wow, that's that is surprising. I mean, that's a lot yeah. of people. Here's to 1930, the bizarre year of space. It was a strange year. Even Frank Drake of the Drake Equation. Big Drake, not Nick Drake. I said Big Drake. <laughs> come oh, on, Matt, come on. Drake. Oh, we should put Pink Moon in the space list, shouldn't we? Ah, oh, really. what a tune. Anyway, yeah. Who else was born in September? Well, Matt, fifteenth of September, mm-hmm. 1857, in Cambridge. Massachusetts, died 4th of January, mm. 1904, Anna Winlock. Space legend. Our space legend of, of the, the week. week. This is a cool little story, this one, because she obviously worked in an era where it was very, very hard to do this kind of stuff. So she was an American astronomer and daughter of Joseph Winlock. Yeah, and Joseph Winlock, uh, her father, was a computer a computer, just a computer, that's what they were called back then, and an astronomer who looked after the Harvard College Observatory. I love that. She was a computer. Um, so she had an interest in both mathematics and the Greek language, at which, of course, she excelled at as a child. Yeah, and then she went on a little voyage with her dad to see the solar eclipse. Oh, nice. At the age of 12. Yeah. Oh, that would do it. Uh, so her father, Joseph, died when Anna was aged 17. And so she had to financially support her mum and her four siblings, so went to work at Harvard College, picking up all the unfinished work that her father had left behind, which was decades of data God, no way. from observations. Yeah. And so the college were desperate, in actual fact, because they needed someone to finish all this work, but they couldn't afford it. 
and being female, she could work for half the wage of her male computer counterpart. How convenient sexism was back yeah. then. <laughs> uh, yeah. So, yeah, in less than a year, she was joined at the observatory by three other women. Uh, these women, or human computers, would have become known as the Harvard Computers or Pickering's Harem gaining notoriety because of the women's low wages, but quality, arduous work. Pickering's harem. Wow. And it's considered, yeah, it's considered a really classic uh, version of the harem effect, Mm. where basically male scientists basically hire a bunch of female subordinates to uh, help them do research, mainly because they're cheaper and uh, there may be other reasons of surrounding yourself with young women among these women uh were williamina fleming annie jump cannon henrietta swan levitt and antonia murray i'm sorry if i've pronounced any of those names wrong i I believe all those women went on to huge success as astronomers no doubt like uh, all, all had very very important parts to play Uh, But the most significant work that Anna worked on was obviously crunching all these numbers that her dad had left behind. Mm. And she basically worked on a section of the numbers called the Cambridge Zone, um, which for 20 years that project basically mapped the stars in a certain part of the night sky. Uh, And and that became the Astronomische Gesellschaft Catalogue which was used between 1890 and 1954, listing 200,000 stars down to ninth magnitude. Just incredible. So she made the most complete catalogue of stars near the North and South Poles of her era. Insane. She was also uh, involved in some calculations of asteroids, uh, 433 Eros and 475 Oclo, but, uh, yeah, the, the, here's the sad bit. So in the last year, yeah. she got a bit of a cold and started coughing a little bit, a little bit like me. And then uh, one day she just didn't turn up and uh, she died at the age of 47, which coincidentally was my birthday the other day. Oh, Matt, please don't say that you're going to go home slightly, and never come back. <clears throat> yeah, slightly poignant, that. At mm-hmm. least wait till we've done 100 while. podcasts. What's What's that comedian who died on stage? Tommy, uh, Tommy Cooper. Cooper. I'm going to do a Tommy Cooper. I'm going to do a Tommy Cooper. You're like you're like the Gigi Allen of the podcast world, aren't you? Exactly right. My goodness. Exactly right. So, Matt, a wonderful, wonderful woman. So, let's mm. raise a glass to lovely Anna. Hey, Matt, on this day, mm-hmm. 14th of September, 1959, what do you think happened? The Russians got to the moon first. Ooh. The Soviet probe, Luna 2, crashes onto the moon becoming the first man-made object to reach it. There we go. So the Russians won the space race back in 1959. Shout out to Matt Breeley of the Juno Observer. So, yeah, Matt Breeley, he sent me over a link to his new little computer program called the Juno Observer that takes all the data from Juno and then puts it on a sphere and you can play around with it and, uh, and fly over Jupiter and see what picture Juno was taking each time. Oh, I and love that. Really, where, can, really cool. where can people check that out? I will put the link in the notes. Let's put the link up. But it's really good. I, th- I think he's just about to release the working version because it was a beta that I was playing around with. But it's really, really cool. It w- it's really smooth. It basically puts the whole thing into context. Mm. It's really, really cool where you sort of fly over and you can see where the picture was taken, where Juno was when it was taking the picture. But also it, the detail's brilliant as well. You can see all those little clouds and stuff. It's, it's fab. It's really good. It's really good. We will so, absolutely yeah. check that out. So, Matt, it's the time everyone's waiting for. Is it? Yeah. Is it Space Word of the Week? S-W-O-T-W. This is one of my favourite words, and it's a word that's popped up quite a few times on our childish podcast, and that is Space Tug. I'm saying nothing because I'm a mature man these days. It's good that you've grown up. This is a Russian name. In your mind, at least. (laughs) I'm trying very hard. (laughs) Hey, Matt. Yeah. If I said to you, Cosmobuxir, what would you think I'd said? Uh, Cosmobuxir, I'd say, is a space tug. Oh, my gosh, it's Russian for space tug. Mate, it's, it's, (laughs) it's space tugboat, yeah? Yeah, space tugboat. 
Um, so a space tug is a type of spacecraft, of course, used to transfer mm. space-borne cargo from one orbit to another orbit, like moving a spacecraft from low Earth orbit to a geostationary transfer orbit, or even an escape trajectory. Space tug does get used in, in different ways. So sometimes it can get used to refer to vehicles that do get expended, like basically... Often the upper stage, the upper stage of things like the Soyuz or the Zenit, the Frigat or the Sherpa stages, mm. or our favourite Breeze M, exactly, often get referred to as space tugs because they sort of go on the top of a rocket and then take the satellite or whatever to its final destination. In fact, I think Breeze M actually flew out into the outer solar system, but uh, <clears throat> with ExoMars. So that's an expendable type of space tug, but really space tug should should refer to vehicles that sort of stay on orbit and then assist uh, like things that have been flown up and then take them to their final destination. So Got it. Of, like, a, like a tugboat, really. But, you know, you know, you get a big ship that's gone across the Atlantic and then a tugboat takes it to its final kind of destination. Well, Matt, one of our favourite Turner paintings, hanging in the National Gallery in London. Mm-hmm. The Fighting Temeraire. It most certainly is. The old warship, broken from its last ever battle, being pulled along by a tugboat. There we go. Uh, and there's some really cool pictures about tug uh, vehicles and things from from NASA's study that they did in the 60s and 70s called the Space Transportation System, or mm. STS. The Space Transportation Systems, we should, we should maybe do a show on this because it's really interesting. That was... Uh, that was all about a permanent space station was going to be one one part of it, and then you were going to have a shuttle that went up from from the Earth up to low Earth orbit, uh-huh. and that actually did become the space shuttle. Uh, then you'd have a chemically fueled space tug that would move crew and equipment around from that orbit that had been delivered by the shuttle. And even cooler is that you'd have a nuclear-powered vehicle using the Nerva engine to ferry crew, spacecraft, and supplies between low Earth orbit and lunar orbit. God, that's Or mad. to other planets. We definitely so, yeah, need that, to that, do a show on that. Yeah, so it, it is really, really cool. So, uh, yeah, the, the shuttle actually came out of that program, and it's actually why it was called the Space Shuttle. Um, uh, but Nixon basically cancelled the whole lot uh, but then Reagan actually uh, um, did approve the space station part of it, but then they ran out of money. Mm. It's weird, isn't it? It happens. Yeah. Um, but yeah, there was other NASA space tug designs, the orbital maneuvering vehicle uh, that was supposed to be used. Uh, and then so it, what it would do is is it would fly around and do things like grab the Hubble telescope and take it back to the space station for repairs and things like that. Right. Yeah, yeah. Now, one thing that that uh, in studying this this space tug thing for space word of the week mm. came up was a um, the orbital gateway that's uh, being now built. The LOP G uh, is now just called the go- It's just now called the gateway. Now it's not called even orbital. I gateway love this. Or, or I love or. the orbital gateway, Matt. Do you? Yeah. You and we should put you and Zubrin in a room and have a fight. I don't like it. I mean, I think I'm with him. Why? Why have this kind of extra level of complexity to get to the moon? Because complexity equals knowledge and power. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Oh, okay. Fair <laughs> enough. But anyway, so the the Europeans are building this thing called Esprit. Mm-hmm. And Esprit will be part of this gateway and is part of the kind of refueling infrastructure as, uh, for the gateway. Um, and that, that looks really, really interesting. I couldn't really find much about it at the moment, um, other than on Russian websites seem to be uh, more concerned about it than the European website. So, yes, Esprit, hopefully we'll find, start seeing more information than that. But the space tug that they're going to be using for Esprit to get it from uh, Earth orbit over to the gateway is uh, based on the Japanese HTV vehicle. Ah, no way. That's mad. Mm -hmm. But there's been lots of uh, things. Perom was a Russian version that was Uh, supposed to carry their Clipper crew vehicle. 
Uh, Sherpa was supposed to go up quite recently on the last uh, Falcon 9 flight, but I'm not, I couldn't work out whether it has or hasn't gone up, but Sherpa is a type of space tug that Spaceflight Inc. used to deliver lots and lots of um, satellites. Uh-huh. And you've also got um, Franklin Chang Diaz. Come on. Uh, remember, remember when we spoke about him? Yeah, I do. He obviously his um his his very very cool electric plasma rocket could be used to come up with a, a really brilliant space tug uh, for getting people to and from Mars in thirty nine days. Trust Franklin to come up with a plasma rocket. You know what I mean? Yeah, and trust Franklin to be in complete opposition to Zubrin because Zubrin calls Vasimir a, a, a hoax. Can you believe that? Yeah, I can. uh but yeah uh, other space tugs to look out for uh uh the indian pam g yeah and uh jupiter by lockheed martin there we go Um, there was a there was the original pam of course flew out out of the space shuttle was a payload assist Ah. there we go we're all learning matt we're all learning I think we should talk about one of the coolest things that's happened this week. Go on. This is absolutely brilliant. I, I, I re-watched Hypernormalization by Adam Curtis last night. There's a guy that works in uh, with Putin called Vladislav Surkov. Yes. And basically, you only have to watch that documentary because he used to be a sort of theatre impresario. Uh, and he's basically come up with this thing of you can never really tell what the hell's going on because... You just send out a different story each week, and it's like, oh, here's a story, here's a story, what the hell's going on? And you do it so it distracts from the real story. Of course. And so it's like, it's basically all about how everything's fake news these days, and the Russians say, are it absolutely very familiar masters of it, because of this guy, Vlad- Vladislav Surkov. And I reckon his hand is all over this latest controversy, that somehow the Europe, the, the American astronauts drilled a hole in the space station to get one of their sick compatriots home because it would be cheaper than Mm. booking an $80 million seat on a Soyuz. It's just ridiculous. Yeah, that that, that rumour is is all over Russia in the newspapers that, yeah, the Americans basically are sabotaging the space station. Mm. And, of course, really, it's just shoddy workmanship by the Russians and and, uh, their space program is failing as far as i can see it's all mm. quite horrific really but what better way to distract matt roscosmos and nasa have sort of got on pretty well but this is can't really help can it can no it? it really can't i think that they just need to they just need to relax yeah the, those those ruskies have been very very naughty recently yeah they have calm it down calm it down naughty russians <laughs> Lauren Grush, our, our uh, guest a couple of oh, weeks yeah. ago, she was reporting uh, that NASA are thinking about product placement as a way of um, paying for some of their missions. Oh, God, yeah. here we go, yeah. <laughs> so Jim Bridenstein has been talking to advisors about whether they should have a massive Coke logo on the side of rockets and, you know, and have Tim Peake uh, always drinking from a Coke can, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Um, yeah. What do you think? <laughs> uh, well, I mean, you know, th- that's fine. Um, I'm not sure Coca-Cola is the best one. Well, what would you have? What would you? What would you? Put well, on the probably side? the Interplanetary Podcast. I mean, I'm just saying. How much money are you going to put into product placement then? Well, um... <laughs> we're going to have patrons. You're really going to have to start going to Patreon now, and we, we need to start upping that. Well, I'm hoping that after this episode, Matt, if, if you want, if you want to see the logo on the side exactly. of the spacecraft. You really yes. need to start, you know, pitching in. I don't know. I think in thirty-five quid. I mean, if I put, if I pull in my Christmas money with wait till March for some birthday money, I think I can get it. But I reckon that would pay for a small fleck of paint. Well, that's all we need. Yeah. We'll three D print our logo on the on the fleck of paint. Probably not even that. Just like the fu- the, the fuel to carry like a, a smudge of a sharpie is probably more. Than thirty-five quid. That's the weird thing. <laughs> I love Sorry. that analogy. A smudge of a sharpie. Yeah, oh, that's probably dear. just the weight. The weight of that ink to get it into low Earth orbit is probably about thirty-five quid. Matt, with a um, smudge, uh, with a smudge from a sharpie in the podcast world, aren't we? Or are we? I like to think of us as the Saturn Five of the podcast world. Yeah, yeah, 
just huge and unbelievable. With extreme thrust. Yes. So, here's a cool one. JPL on. have, have won an Emmy. Have they? Yeah, for for the uh, for their coverage of Cassini's grand finale at Saturn. Beautiful. It's yeah, cool, isn't Congratulations, it? JPL. Congratulations and well-deserved. Oh, I'll tell you what was brilliant. So I had to get up at 5 o'clock in the morning to do a load-in on my birthday on September the 10th. Uh, I had to get really early to do a load-in, and I sat down having my breakfast, and my mobile phone app called Space Launch Now, which mm. I have to say is genius, um, so and ping, uh, the, uh, 15 minutes for a SpaceX launch. So I switched on the telly, did a bit of chrome casting, and uh, sat there with me uh, Weetabix watching uh, SpaceX Falcon 9 launching, um, I can't remember what satellite it was now, but yeah, launching up into, uh, up, up into space and landing, the drone, and landing on the drone ship. That's a beautiful story, Matt. And, and for people who aren't in the music industry and think you might have been doing something very naughty, uh, what's a load yeah. in, Matt? Uh, it's, it's getting to, getting to a, a venue and... And, and pushing PA through a door and loading all the gear in. Okay, just wanted loading to clear all that. The gear in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was good. And uh, talking of Falcon Nine, I saw a quote on Twitter that uh, uh, Gwyn Shotwell had said that Falcon Nine first stages come are coming back in much better shape than anticipated, and they've got the refurbishment time down to four weeks. But it's four still weeks. the goal is to get it to a one day turnaround. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So, Matt, it's a very exciting week this week because we have Mm -hmm. another interview, this time with the legend that is John Krause. Oh, this was was an exciting one. It was quite hard to get John on the show. He, I don't know if he was being shy, uh, but, uh, yeah, he took a bit of persuasion to come on. Wasn't so sure, was he? I don't blame him. And the cool thing was... He probably listened to an episode, Matt. He's such a cool cat that uh, he didn't use Skype, so we used Discord instead, which gave me a chance to check out whether we could use Discord. And Discord works really, really well, so you can join in, have all the people that you want join in, but all our patrons who are on the Discord channel could, uh, and all of John's actually could ask questions uh, uh, while brilliant. we were talking that's got to be the future isn't it yeah i quite like the discord thing so we'll try and do more of those uh, it, I, I was a bit nervous because i've never tried it before but it worked out really really well so would you like to have a listen at uh, well, to uh, the interview with the great photographer i would bloody I, love to have a listen i think a lot of people are sort of interested in the kind of technical aspect of what john does but i have to i have to say when I, when I, when you look at the body of work that he does it's it's really well balanced work you know he's he's actually a lot of time and thought has gone into the composition and it's not just a kind of technical tour de force but there's there's way more to his photography than that it's really really good so it's not just point and click no it's not point and click and or just having some good gear it's actually genuine old fashioned photography skills excellent to know well so yeah i was really excited about this interview so uh, let's do it shall we shall, shall we do it yes I'm joined on the Interplanetary Podcast by John Krause, who's a bit of a making himself a real big name for himself in uh, rocket photography at the moment. Hello, John. Welcome to the podcast. Hey, thanks for having me. So, uh, yeah, if you can tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and how you how you even started getting into this, what seems like a ludicrously difficult thing to do. So I am a photographer on Florida Space Coast, which is where um, most of America's space flight happens. And um, I work as a, a media member covering the launches on site. So what that entails is I set cameras at the launch pad and those are sound activated because from that proximity, either um, you'd, you'd be hurt by sound or flame. So um yeah, basically, I, I set cameras at the rockets. They uh, they capture images. We go back after the launch. We pick them up and um, see what we capture. Um, it's it's a really fun. Right now, I call it a lucrative hobby. Um, it's not it's not a full time career yet, but it's definitely something I aspire to do full time in some in some way. You and a few uh, and a handful of others have managed to start capturing pictures of rockets the like of which I've, we kind of haven't seen before. What is it in the technology that's changed that's allowed that kind of photography to actually start to be taken? 
Um, I wouldn't say it's any sort of new technology. I think it's just sort of a wave of, um, of style that's uh, sweeping over everyone. You know, they all want to capture the exhaust and, um, the, the technology has been there for a while in terms of cameras, but I'd say, um, it's a lot in the, in the post-processing as well as the exposure. Um, and I think people are kind of figuring out how to do that. And the launch cadence rising has given people the opportunity to, you know, experiment every launch mm-hmm. because instead of a space launch every three, four, five, six months or every other year when they're having issues and that sort of stuff, you know, we have launches every, every week, or every other week. So we can really experiment and, uh, and fine tune what we capture. How on earth did you sort of start kitting yourself out and getting, because it seems to me you, you've got several, areas to have to think about is a the access to the site itself and to have the equipment in the first place to do it what wh- how did you get started what was the so so i'll talk a little bit about the equipment i currently use first so the the problem with the remote cameras is um the term remote in a sense from what i've gathered and kind of gone with it doesn't mean remote as in you know we're standing somewhere with the remote shutter release five miles away i actually think of it as remote as in they are far away they are remote and we cannot access them after we place them unless we're granted permission following, say, a scrub. So those cameras have to sit out in the Florida elements for maybe 8, 24, 48 hours if there's a scrub. So I use rather rather low-end gear because if, say, rain or even a rocket destroys my camera, I don't have to spend thousands of dollars to replace equipment. So right now I'm running an arsenal of uh, three Nikon D7000s and purchased refurbished or used those go for a little under three hundred dollars so you know losing a camera isn't a big blow compared to placing out multi-thousand dollar equipment um so that's the main thing with that cheap gear but good enough that it still captures quality images and uh really any any entry-level camera can still capture great stuff but that's a whole nother discussion um so with the access um i'll start about three years ago where i started um I just randomly picked up a camera, um, kind of talking to some people that did photography. I'm like, hey, this seems like something I might be interested in doing. So I pretty much on a whim, I went to Best Buy, bought a, a Nikon D3300, and I, I just started shooting pictures of everything. Um, about a month after I started, there was a Falcon 9 launch. It was a Falcon 9 launch of Discover. And that was, I think it was February 11th of 2015. And I, I just raced, raced on over to the beach. Um, I was actually parking. My mom drove me, but we were parking and we got out as the launch was taking place. And uh, I just ran up to the boardwalk, snapped a couple of pictures. And I'm like, Hey, that was, that was pretty cool. Cause you know, I grew up watching the launches and I, you know, they kind of happen. I'm like, ah, cool. There's a launch, but I never really thought more of that. So once, once I had a camera, it kind of gave me an appreciation of what was going on. And just, you know, right away it turned from, Hey, there's a launch tomorrow. I'm going to snap a couple of pictures to, Hey, I got to plan out my shots for the launch next month. So it, it really gave me an appreciation of what goes on at the Cape and it slowly turned from turned from I'm going to shoot every now and then to I want to shoot every launch. So how old were you on that first photo shoot, as it were? So for the first launch, um, it was about a month or two after I turned 15. So I was a, um, I was a freshman in high school. I was 15, yeah. Wow. <laughs> so, yeah, and, and in, so it's been a very short while, really, since you've, you've, you've sort of taken that from uh, stepping out your mum's car and into a fully-fledged having it, yeah. you know, your, your pictures retweeted by all and sundry throughout the kind of, you know, every, you know Tory Bruno and all people like that retweeting all yeah. your, your work. I mean, that, that, must, that must feel pretty special, right? Yeah, it's, it's cool. They... Um especially Tori Bruno, he's very interactive on Twitter and uh, he shares a lot of people's stuff, but it's, it's cool to see my work shared so prominently by people that make it happen. Um, just something about that is like, I'm photographing what you do and you care enough to share it. Uh, I just find that kind of, kind of cool. Yeah, no, absolutely. And you've, you've, you've also had the, you've had a, is it three uh, astronomy pictures of the day on the NASA website? Yeah. So I just, I just had my third last week. Um, yeah, it's up to three now. Yeah, that 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 one of Delta Four was pretty incredible. <laughs> was actually incredible. Yeah, Thank I mean, you. Thank I mean, that that they they are incredible shots. So when you move from this a uh, single camera, so how many cameras will you have down uh, at the Cape, and how far away are they actually from the launch pad? 
So number of cameras depends on, um, you know, how high profile the launch is or, or what I want to capture specifically anywhere from one to three at the launch pad and then one or two on me, wherever I'm shooting from. And uh, their proximity really depends on the launch service provider and um, what launch pad specifically. So the cameras is about 150, 200 feet at the Delta IV launch pad, which is uh, 37B, and that's United Launch Alliance. And then at, at uh, 39A, which is SpaceX's pad, one of their pads on the Cape, it's like half a mile maybe, maybe like three-tenths of a mile or something. It, it's, it's rather far. Actually, it's, it's far enough to where you have to consider the sound delay when using a sound trigger. Hmm. So it really varies, which can kind of make things complicated. You know, some pads were 600 feet, some pads were 200, some pads were 1,200, 1,500 or farther. So, I mean, so you are a reasonable distance. So the lenses that you have on your cameras uh, must be fairly heavy duty. What sort of, what sort of lens are you using? Um, again, it really depends on what image I'm going after. Sometimes it's an ultra wide like that, that uh, NASA astronomy picture of the day, the most recent one that was with an 11 millimeter, which is really wide because it was really close. Mm-hmm. And, um, and sometimes I'm using, you know, the tighter lenses for those, for those close-up shots. But yeah, it really varies depending on the launch. So you've got, you, so you've got quite an arsenal of lenses, I'm assuming now. Yeah, I'm staring at them right now. Um, <laughs> I have quite a few scattered out in my room. Some of them are standing up on the shelf because they're retired because they got destroyed by rain or a rocket. How do you make an in- income from from this? And, and what is your kind of main source? Is it is it from your website selling prints of it? Yeah, so the primary source of income right now is prints. I sell a fair bit of prints each month, and that can help support the gear and the travels and whatnot. And then I also do licensing to you know any third party that's interested in buying a photo like um, Bloomberg Business Week actually just used one of my images on the cover of their space issue. So, so agreements like that, magazine covers, which I've had a few of, um, website licensing, that sort of stuff. When you say a lot of that is to do with the post-production of your photography, what exactly do you use to actually eke out the detail and, the, and get the atmosphere, I suppose? So primarily I use, I use Lightroom for those sort of adjustments. Um, the trick is with the exposure is, and in, I'm in talking in reference to the, the exhaust shots, you want to expose dark enough to just get all of the, all the flame detail. You don't want to lose any of that. It'll just turn white, but you don't want to go so dark that you lose what's called the shadows. Um, cause if you expose too dark, you're not going to retain any of the data to bring up the rest of the image. So, um, in Lightroom, you know, you, you want to brighten up the dark parts of the image, but not blow out the. Mm. the highlights when you're editing so it's kind of a tricky slope to find a nice balance but um it, you know it starts with the exposure and then you see what you get and you play with it in lightroom Do, with uh because i've done a bit of astrophotography in my time and and it's and the main method in that is obviously to stack quite a lot of um images together so that you reduce the noise are you doing any uh, any techniques like that or is it just single exposure and then uh, adjusting the curves and the levels so the exhaust shots let's see every one i've done so far has been a single exposure because things move so quickly that even with high speed cameras by the time you you trigger a next exposure at different settings things are going to be different and you won't be able to stack them as easily um so that's the tricky part is getting all that data in one exposure without blowing out the highlights and without losing the shadows. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it just seems incredible because presumably you're shooting too fast to have it as, a, as an HDR image straight off the camera and then you're sh- shooting in raw, yeah, exactly. I'm assuming. So yes, raw. Was it a lot of experimentation to make sure that you had the right exposure in the first place? I mean, how, how did you, you know, because you don't get many shots at this, so presumably you've, you've found those settings fast or was there a sort of, is there a community of rocket photographers that all get together and help each other out? Yeah, everyone's pretty supportive. Um, a lot of people share their settings, and there's public domain photos that have settings as a reference. And I, I kind of use those and fine-tune them and then use the experience I've built up to fine-tune. For the exhaust shots, it, it does depend on the rocket. So, you know, it depends on the number of solids, depends on the specific launch vehicle. And those, and those close-up settings do change launch to launch and launch vehicle to launch vehicle. Even even for some launches, if I haven't shot a close-up 
of that rocket before i may be kind of just spitballing settings and saying hey this seems a little brighter than so and so but darker than the one two launches ago and i kind of just hope that the flexibility of shooting in raw will save that data and i'll be able to recover anything so it's, it's kind of guesswork with experience a little mixture of both capturing that detail and the speed that it has to be because these things are traveling quite fast and when you look at the exhaust you know we, we've captured a, a real moment in time what how fast is the shutter speed at that point normally roughly bit of a trade secret but i'll, I'll say it's very close to the max the, the camera can handle in the realm of you know one two thousandth to one eight thousandth it all depends but what's crazy is there's still motion blur even at that the fast of a shutter speed because the flames are just traveling unbelievably fast and how is, is there any way that you try and uh, get rid of that motion blur? Is it some form of unsharpened technique or one of those things? No, I mean, the, the, the rockets are traveling slow, slowly enough at that point to where the rockets themselves still have motion blur. It's more so in the flame. But um, some photographers have done high-speed video, particularly his name's Ryan Chulinski. He does very great work. And even in his unbelievably high frames per second video, there's still some motion blur, which is just insane. Have you done other uh, launch facilities or 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 has it always been at the cape um i've not shot any large launches outside of cape canaveral i've done a few like you know the small high-powered rockets for some friends Mm. but um no i haven't traveled to any other launch sites for imagery but i do have plans right now to go to vandenberg for the final delta 2 launch in september that's one not to be missed isn't it really it's your last chance yes your last chance yeah I, I grew up watching um, Delta Twos from the Cape, but they they stopped the Florida flights before I even started photography. So I think it's kind of cool that I'm going to be able to to see the last one while shooting my first one, despite having you know already watched a lot of them. Have you, have you thought about uh, yeah traveling to do a Soyuz or an Ariane launch? Um, I won't I won't commit to answering that fully because the plans aren't sorted out. But but a Soyuz launch could be on the horizon that's all i'll say the south american french guru or the or, or the ones over in uh Bacnor or the other one vostochny isn't it the 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 kazakhstan launch site yeah. so back yeah Bacnor, yeah yeah i've not seen that sort of thing done with ariane or soyuz or anything like that and is that is that because of the access that these the, those providers are giving or do you think it's just the fact that people haven't really started to sort of cotton on there yet i have seen a few images from NASA photographers of the Soyuz that are of that style. And then Ariane, I have seen one, I think, high-speed video by them officially mm-hmm. that was of that nature, exposing for the solids. Yeah, a few, a few people have done it. Um, I think it's just kind of caught on lately. Um, people realize that the sensor technology can handle that sort of thing, and they go for it. But, you know, not every not every launch image has to be a close-up exhaust shot. You know, a lot of times yeah. I try to incorporate scenery or whatnot i try to approach it as as an art as well you know it's not just pointing a camera at a rocket with the right settings and getting a cool sharp shot it's, it's sort of you know using framing elements and actual you know photographic principles if you will to try to make a, a pleasing shot oh no absolutely and that's i, I definitely wouldn't want to take the kind of artistic element away because that's one of the things that's that's actually quite stunning about a lot of the photography particularly yours is that it manages to catch a, a whole new mood of the of the rocket taking off which is include including the ones where yeah you're you're taking ones of the whole arc of falcon 9 for example going over and even the boosters in the background with the, your long exposure style uh, photography mm-hmm. so yeah so do you do you sit down and plan the kind of artistic element of it for for any length of time what's what's your process there yeah, there's there's a lot of planning that goes into it because um, let me just use like a an Atlas V launch for example. Um, I've been to that pad a few times. I wouldn't say I know it like the back of my hand, but you know we can't just drive up in any day on any day and start planning our shots. You know they say you need to see her next time. We're going to take you to the pad. You might get X time, and then we're out. So you kind of want to be able to look at other shots for reference, look at your past shots for reference, and have an idea of what you're doing before you get to the launch pad because we can't just go there any old day and scout it out so yeah who who do you liaise with are you liaising with the owners of the pad or or the or the rocket or the actual uh 
provider of the rocket? What, what's, who's, the, who's, who's the boss when it comes to how close you can get to the rocket? Because presumably when you would say laying out your cameras for Delta Four Heavy the other day, was the was the I'm assuming that the rocket was on the pad and and it was all there. So who how how are you allowed to get that close to a sort of fully laden uh, beast? So with that, it depends on exactly who's launching the rocket and as well as what payloads on top of it. So when I first started out, I was badging through the the Air Force, the 45th Space Wing at Cape Canaveral Air Force Station. Um, first off, it's important to realize that the Cape is made up. But when we say the Cape, there's Cape Canaveral Air Force Station and there's Kennedy Space Center. And those are two adjacent but separately run facilities. So the badging, badging procedures change between the two. So initially, I badged for the Air Force, and um, they would be the escort for the media. Um, they would give us access to the launch pads. You know, they kind of worked in tandem with the launch provider to give us access. But normally, our actual escort would be an Air Force caravan. And then, you know, it, it does change sometimes. Sometimes it'll be a SpaceX bus. Sometimes it'll be in our own car. Sometimes it'll be a, a Kennedy Space Center bus with Kennedy Space Center exports, uh, escorts. Sorry. But speaking for the, the Delta IV, that was a NASA payload. So Kennedy Space Center handled the badging and escorting. Right. And once we were at the pad, there were ULA officials that kind of, you know, tell us where we can go, where we can't go, that sort of stuff. Yeah, it's really interesting because we were, I was down at uh, the Ariane and Vega launch pads quite recently. I, I took a trip out to French Carew and it seemed like you, you, you know, once the, once the rockets are out, it seemed like you'd have to be royalty to, <laughs> to go anywhere, <laughs> anywhere near them at all. You know, there, there were some viewing points that you were allowed to go to that were quite a long way from the, uh, from the launch pads. So it'd be interesting, wouldn't it? Uh, it's interesting how much the French will allow people close to their rockets. I think it's uh, I think they're a little bit more safety conscious because that was one of the questions that one of the guys asked was was about the, the the Delta. Yeah, so generally the the rockets are on the pad now. They're not they're not actively fueled. They're not minutes from launching. But but if they're not on the pad, then they're about to be rolled out, or they're still horizontal. But but. For the most part, yeah, the, the rockets are vertical on the pad when we when we set up our cameras. Yeah, that's so. Th- that was one question that that you answered very early on was that they're sound activated because uh, that was another thing we we couldn't have any Wi-Fi devices anywhere near the the rockets when we were down in uh, uh, down at the European spaceport. Um, mm-hmm. What what is the piece of equipment then? That is is it a bespoke piece of equipment that does the um, the the sound activation so a lot of people including myself i just switched over recently from a previous trigger i use what's called the the myops trigger and it's this cool piece of equipment that you can mount right on top of your camera into the hot shoe mount and it has a sound activation mode it has um, a couple other modes as well but primarily i use it for sound and uh, you just plug it right into your camera and there's a sensitivity threshold you set before you you know leave it and uh, it'll it'll fire the camera away and, and one misconception people have is they think it's like the rocket goes off, the camera hears it, and it fires one shot. No, um, generally it's a, it's a rapid fire. You know, as long as it'll hear sound, it'll keep click, 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 click until the rocket's well out of the frame. So we get, we get a wide variety of images to choose from. Oh, okay. So it just keeps firing all the time there's a loud noise around. Mm-hmm, pretty much. So sometimes, you know, if a loud truck drives by, if it rains... Um, we'll get hundreds of images on our on our cards of rain, <laughs> which actually happened for the Delta Four Heavy um, last week. And funnily enough, I was worried that the rain at the launch pad damaged my cameras enough to like fry them. And then the next concern was if they weren't fried, that the triggers would have triggered the cameras so much that the batteries would have died. Hmm. I was going to but ask. Luckily, about, that didn't happen. I was going to ask about batteries. I mean, presumably, so these things are out out of your kind of uh, care for hours and hours and hours and hours and hours. So presumably this, um, this thing listening has a battery life that's, that's brilliant. But your cameras too, they must sort of be quite happy sitting there uh, running off their batteries for a long time. Do you, have, do you have an extra battery pack next to them or do they just run on their standard batteries? Some photographers do have external battery packs. I personally don't because um, the cameras go into a sleep mode and they're actually woken up by the sound trigger. 
So the longest I've had cameras sit out is about 52 hours from placement until eventual liftoff, and they they fired okay. Have you got a favorite photo of yours of all time in this show? Oh, man. Ah, it's too tough to say one for sure, but just just because I'm going to have to give an answer, I'm going to say it's the the Delta Four launch photo that is currently in ULA's facility, which is a close up of a Delta Four medium plus five four, which means five meter payload fairing and four solid rocket motors, um, launching the WGS Nine satellite for the Air Force on. March 18th, 2017. Wow, that's a mouthful. But um, do you know the one I'm referencing? Oh, I, I do. Is that the one that he's got in his office that's kind of the, almost the wallpaper? Is that is that the one? It's it's a wallpaper, yeah. It's about two stories tall, um, and it's up in United Launch Alliance's headquarters lobby in um, Centennial, Colorado. That is that is insanely cool, isn't it? Is that... it's, it's wild. <laughs> it's, and, it, and, it, and it's huge in person, but it's only about one third scale, according to according to Mr. Bruno. Yeah, well, but that I mean that that really must have been a special moment to think that he's chosen that to to go up on the wall, and it's you know, <laughs> it was it was it was pretty cool. Yeah. And how how long had you been doing the the rocket photography at that stage? So. When I shot the photo, I had been a, a member of the media, a credentialed member of the media for about a year, and I had been doing photography for a little over two years. So, and by the time the photo went up, the photo went up about six months after the after the launch. Wow, I mean, it's, not, not too long, but I I've been doing it for a bit. <laughs> yeah, but no, I mean that's that's uh, that's that's what I would call meteoric. <laughs> in, mm-hmm. in uh, you know, that's almost going up as fast as as the delta itself so (laughs) what was the in terms of your in terms has there been one massive disappointment where you've gone to the you've gone to collect your cameras and looked at the what they've got on there and you've got nothing have you ever had that happen um i'll give you a few quick stories so for a while actually i never had a camera fail to trigger in some capacity um i had one launch that scrubbed due to rain and before we got to our cameras, there was just torrential downpour. And my cameras, I had two cameras out. They were destroyed. But before the scrub, some sort of loud noise at the launch pad triggered the camera, and it caught a static image of the rocket on the pad. So I consider that a success. <laughs> um, and then I, I had a couple of launches. Nighttime launches were due, formed on the lens, and just obscured the image. Um, and then up until about a month ago, it was what, what launch was it? Yeah, about a month ago was the first time I had a remote camera straight up fail. I don't know if the camera died before the launch or if the trigger just you know didn't want to wake up the camera, but I came back to nothing. So that was the first failure, and uh, I had captured a shot offsite that I was happy with, so I wasn't too bummed. Now let me get into a failure that at the time I thought was a failure, but ended up being a success. So for Falcon Heavy, I placed a camera. You know, it was poised to do one of those close-up shots of the engines, mm-hmm. and it was it was at that far away location, 39A, where I where I was saying the cameras are far enough to where you actually have to take into account the sound delay. And I pointed the camera fairly high up, thinking that you know by the time the sound reached the camera, the rocket would climb through the frame, and I get shots of the engines. But even with that in mind, I still pointed the camera too low, and the first frame that the camera captured actually did not have any of the engines in the frame. <laughs> so my other, my wide angle camera work, and I was happy with that one. And I'm looking at this one. I'm, and I was utterly disappointed because, you know, this, this was right when those shots were starting to take over. And I'm thinking I'm going to walk away from what's going to probably end up being the biggest launch of the year with a shot. I wanted to capture not in my SD card. Mm. So for like five minutes, I was just really disappointed. And I thought, you know, everyone else is going to get, the shot i wanted and they're going to go with that one and i i gotta say a good friend of mine brady kenniston he did get the shot it was exceptional it actually got retweeted by elon musk but my mindset before that was i might as well just go with the shot i got because it's different than what everyone else is going to get mm-hmm. or going to share so i went with it and it, it got a fair bit of attention it's actually it's it's one of my more abstract close-up photos it just kind of looks surreal <laughs> and uh it ended up you know the the magazine Aviation Week. They ended up reaching out and they they purchased it. They licensed it for their cover. 
So I thought it was kind of funny how, you know, this is a shot that like once the rocket clears the frame, everyone has it. But because I didn't get the good shot in my mind at the time, um, I kind of went with the one that everyone else had. That was a long wind way of <laughs> describing it. But um, anyway, I'm staring at the shot right now and, and it's become one of my favorites just because you can see the three flames from the boosters. And it's kind of like the symbolical abstract representation of Falcon Heavy. And the kind of short sentence I've used to describe it is you can tell it's Falcon Heavy, but none of Falcon Heavy is even in the frame. And that's what I kind of love about it. That's a, that's a really good story to end on. Yeah, it, uh, it was pretty cool. I, I'm not going to waste any more of your time, John. That, uh, thanks very much for joining us. It's, it's been uh, an, an eye-opener of, of how this is, how it happens. I, I, I am a real fan of your work. Thank you. Every, everyone shares it. You know, it's, uh, it, it's, Thank it's, you. it's, it's a phenomena. Uh, and thanks very much for joining us. Thank you. I appreciate it. Well, I absolutely love it. And it's made me want to, Matt, go back to your garden and get the camera out, get the telescope out and start snapping. People are still talking about my moon photo from five years ago. Now, are they? And by people, I mean, I sometimes mention it to you and my mum. <laughs> yeah. Um. So, yeah. So, John, John will be on his way to watch the Delta 2 launch that's happening. Uh-huh, in a couple of days' two, time. Yes. In fact, uh, when you listen to this, it's probably just about to happen. Yeah. So, uh, Ice Sat 2 is going to be launching on a Delta 2, and it will be the last Delta 2 ever. End of an era. Yeah, but if you come to the podcast, 100th episode of the podcast live, you'll be able to see Ooh. a very, very large version Delta 2 at the British Interplanetary Society. 28th of September, people. Not long to go. Where do people go for tickets, Matt? I mean, I know they're free, but where? They're on the website. Go directly to the website. It's on the homepage. Uh, tickets are free, available now, but there are limited places. So get your get, get the tech, ticket in now. What I don't want people doing is turning up and then be and, and thus going, oh, no, you're going to have to stand outside <laughs> until we go to the yeah, pub. Yeah, they're really – and trust us, we're not just saying this – the tickets are almost gone and there isn't that many seats no. so so get you get involved get organized one more launch that's worth no, uh, uh, talking about is um uh-huh. uh, we've got uh, ISRO are launching Novasar S spacecraft which is a british satellite that surrey mm-hmm. that surrey satellites have built uh, and the British government, so that's going up. And in fact, two British satellites are going up on that day. Another high-resolution optical Earth observation satellite by Surrey Satellites as well. Nice. So yeah, it's that's one to look out for. Uh, an Indian launch, or probably Saturday or Sunday. Big uh, week. Big week for so uh, quite a few launches, and, and don't forget, there's even a Japanese launch. So there's a Japanese, American, and Indian launch this week. Uh, Got to look out for it, huh? Moshi moshi, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and the obviously the Japanese launch is one of those HTVs that we talked about that might be converted yes. into a space tug. That makes me happy. On its way to the International Space Station, Jamie, get up there, Jamie. I, w- yeah. I wanted to turn um, uh, space fact of the week into space mission of the week this week. Oh, go on then. Just to close off the show. So this week sure. I went to see Phil Presser at the uh-huh. British Interplanetary Society. And, uh, yeah, he was talking about Hexagon KH9, or Big Bird. No, no way. Which was a top-secret U.S. satellite, the size of a truck. And it flew from 1971, so just before I was born, and it, and it finished flying 20 flights later in 1986. And... When he talked about it, I was just literally blown away about what the Americans could achieve back then. I mean, it's just it is actually genuinely ridiculous. So you've got this absolutely huge spacecraft in in the first place and it was capable Mm. of taking so it had two cameras, one facing forward one facing back and it could take pictures stereo image pictures so you could see how tall buildings were and stuff like that. But its resolution was down to a foot. Wow. Yeah. I mean so that's like uh, absolutely incredible resolution. Especially and, for that time. Oh, yeah, it doesn't, doesn't even bear thinking about it. I mean, that would be incredible res- resolution for now. Uh, and and it would fly down as low as 90 miles. That's when it would take its best pictures. 
but the the way that the film remember this is film as well this isn't like digital photography this is film so there's yeah. massive rolls of film so it carries these two rolls of film 30 miles of film 30 miles you heard me right 30 miles of film <laughs> All the parts in this uh, in the in the satellite had to rotate in different directions, so that when they rotated, they didn't um, you know give off their angular momentum and start spinning the spacecraft itself. So, mm. so this whole thing is built like to utter precision. It was the first. Uh, it basically they had to develop things like brushless motors because motors have got dirt in them, so they had to be brushless. So they invented brushless motors. They pretty much invented. Uh, optical um, tracking of the motor, so servos and all that, like <laughs> really important. First oh, people to fly, amazing, fly isn't it? fiber optics into space, and all of it was done with slide rules. <laughs> what? Uh, um, what was the incredible bit was this guy uh, had spent the first five years of his life running away from the Nazis in Nazi Germany. That's as ridiculous. a Jew, yeah, and uh, and he went on. He, the photographs were so important that there are, a, you know, a couple of occasions where you could very much argue that the information contained in the in the photographs avoided World War Three. Without Matt, can being we put silly. that up on the blog too, please? Yes, absolutely. I put a whole heap of information about about hexagon what a fantastic just too good uh david baker introduced him uh david interviewed him a lot for his book the haynes manual of spy satellites which is definitely worth a read that's a great book Uh, sure yeah so uh and i I bet he um phil said that he'd actually written a book as well by the way he goes i can prove that i love satellites and he pulled up his leg and he has a metal leg made from satellite parts (laughs) What? <laughs> so, so yeah, this guy was just incredible, and yeah, well, uh, that's a first. Yeah, some of the... I thought you were going to say he had a satellite tattoo on his no, leg. No, no, even better. His his old leg was made from stuff that you make satellites from. Uh, wow. Yeah, and he, um, uh, yeah, I mean, he was the he was the sort of controller of all that, and things like there was a star tracker in this uh, particular in Hexagon, and he went mm. on to develop the star tra- tracker which is what's used on the Hubble telescope. So he developed the Hubble telescope star tracker. Um, it's just it's just amazing. That's mind-blowing. Oh, Excellent uh, stuff. Here's, here's one fact that I absolutely love. And actually, it was Marcus Allen that pointed this out. So Marcus was there, and we'll, I'll get on to something in a second. <laughs> of course is, he was. He Go was on. there. And he was basically sort of going, oh, have you heard that all the uh, American spy satellites have been switched off because Snow White's been switched off? And so he was... Very adamant about that. I couldn't find it on the internet anywhere, but he was saying, yes, all the spy satellites have have gone black. They've gone dark. And he was very, very kind of animated (laughs) about it. But then he asked uh, asked Phil about the space shuttle, and Phil Mm. confirmed that, yes, the space shuttle itself was designed to carry the hexagon so that the, the payload bay literally fits the hexagon satellite exactly. So yes, it's designed to carry this spy satellite. That, but that was top secret until very, very recently. God, but that's brilliant. As, I bet he was loving that. Yeah, but as a full circle thing, and Marcus pointed this out. Remember when we talked about John Young when he flew yes. the first ever space shuttle mission? He had to do some maneuvers so that they could check the tiles because they were worried about them. It was the hexagon that was the spy satellite that took the pictures that John Young wasn't allowed to know what he was doing it for. So, oh my God, yeah, so, so it was sort of full circle for the hexagon at that point. But um, here's a really interesting point that Marcus picked up on very, very sh- sharply. He, Phil Press was talking about how the film went over these uh, uh, capstans and, and little rods and stuff called spinners mm. and loopers, a way of keeping the film in line over the camera. And uh, as the film went over, it was on a bed of nitrogen, uh, so that a mm. bit like you know when you play air hockey, it's like that. Uh-huh. So the film would go over, and the film itself was always bathed under pressure and with, with nitrogen. And then Marcus goes, "Oh, did you did you see that he practically admitted that the moon uh, that the moon landings were a hoax?" And uh, it was because the film that they used on the moon wasn't wasn't pressurized with nitrogen, so therefore it couldn't have worked. <laughs> 
<laughs> so, and what was the reaction? Oh well, no, he only no, Marcus only sort of confided in me afterwards, and I was thinking, right. oh come oh, on, Marcus. Okay. This wasn't. I said, here's the yeah. here's the here's the evidence on one hand, and here's the evidence on the other. Come on, it, it, but he, but he's up he's up for doing he's up for doing a part three because he's come up with the answers of how we stumped him on part two. Oh, I don't know if I can take it. <laughs> maybe, one day. Well, maybe one day. Um, maybe so, one day. But yeah, uh, if anyone knows the answer about the, the film and nitrogen on, on the moon, that'd be, that'd be interesting, but I'm sure there is one. Please get in touch. And talking of getting in touch, Matt, mm-hmm. if somebody's listening to this for the first time, how do they check us out? What's our social media sites? And more importantly, Matt, how do they become a patron? Oh, well, I think you just... On all of those accounts, you just go to www.interplanetary.org.uk. It's a huge website in terms of its importance, isn't it, Matt? Yeah, and you can you can go there. You can find out where to become a patron. You can find out where to go to iTunes and leave us that lovely review and five and on our, on our five stars if they, if that's how you feel. I mean, if that's what you want then who's to stop you? But the big push, come and join us at the 100th podcast and you can watch it live on YouTube. Uh, the, the YouTube uh, live thing's already up, so if you if you wander over to our, our very, very under-described, under-subscribed YouTube channel, because we've not really done anything with it, there is a little holding place for our little live show there. This is going to be a big night, yep. so... It's going to be Get a big night. Sorted. It's going to be a big night. David Baker's definitely there uh, answering questions. It's going to be cool. Awesome. So, Jamie, shall we let the Spodcats go? Let's let you go. Spodcats, it's been an absolute pleasure, as always. Have a good weekend. All the fun in space. Take care. As Roger Taylor would say. Bye-bye. See you soon. Ta-ta. Ta-ta.